Bruckner divides people. One of the things I've found when I mention that I've made a speciality of Bruckner's music is that you tend to get one of two reactions. Either you get intense, full-on enthusiasm, oh, Bruckner, how wonderful, or you get a much more dismayed reaction. People talk about those interminable symphonies. But what I've found is when people do make comments like that, is I say, well, do you find the church music as difficult as the symphonies? And it's fascinating how many people will come back and say, oh, no, no, the church music is another matter entirely. It's extremely beautiful. I think this is quite interesting because the church music is just as much a reflection of Bruckner's vocation as a composer as his symphonies. After all, he didn't spend anything like as much of his life writing symphonies as he did writing church music. His first symphony wasn't written until he was in his early 40s, but in fact he was writing church music already in his teens, and his first really significant masterpieces in this venue appear in his mid-30s. We'll be hearing one of those later in the program. Bruckner was an intensely devout Roman Catholic. This, I think, has an extremely important bearing on why he wrote church music. He definitely felt that he had a vocation as a composer. It wasn't just a question of his fulfilling his talents or simply enjoying himself or expressing himself. He felt that God had given him his talent and that it was important for him to use it in a way that was acceptable to God. There's one story, for instance, I've encountered of him saying to one of his pupils when Bruckner was lamenting the fact that he was bombarded with criticism by the Viennese press in the period when he was living in Vienna, a lot of extremely uncomprehending criticism of his work. Bruckner said, people want me to write differently. I could, but I know I mustn't. So he had a very clear sense of what it was that he was expected to produce. And I don't think that this is anywhere clearer than in the music that he wrote for the church. We'll be hearing some wonderful examples of that. And at the age of 13, when Bruckner's father died, and life became just too much for Bruckner's mother, who was coping with a very full household with not much of an income, she realized his extraordinary musical talent and took him to the nearby religious community of St. Florian. Actually, I say nearby, it was only about a couple of hundred meters away from the house. The, the Abbey of St. Florian is right in the middle of the village of Ansfelden, where Bruckner was born and brought up. And it was there that he was taken in, trained in music, educated, and he found there an extraordinary sense of peace and security, which I can well understand having visited the place. It's one of the most beautiful of all the upper Austrian monastic buildings. And for the rest of his life, St. Florian remained a kind of spiritual home. Throughout the crises, the many crises that occurred later in life, and he was particularly prone to battling with depression, it was to St. Florian that he returned for a sense of belonging, a sense of stability, and a sense of peace. And often I think one can see, particularly as one sees how he plans out his music, almost an attempt to recreate something of the stability and the chaste proportion and serenity of the architecture of St. Florian in his own music. The text of the motet Locus Iste, we're going to hear in a moment, is actually very relevant to this. The text is, this place is made by God. It is a mystery beyond price and untainted by evil. I've often felt this must reflect how Bruckner felt about St. Florian, his spiritual home. And then looking at the score this evening, there was something that wasn't on my score, which was a dedication 
to the priest who was in fact the father superior at St. Florian who assisted in Bruckner's education, so the link was complete. This is how Lucas Iste begins. It's got a very simple melody and it's in very simple, neatly balanced phrases. But listen to what the basses sing when the melody stops. So very simple, clear-cut, beautifully balanced melodic phrases. But every time they stop, the basses carry on as though they were singing a kind of mysterious counter-melody to that of the sopranos. I think Bruckner may have had a model in mind for this motet Locusiste, a piece he knew very well and loved and revered throughout his life, and that's Mozart's famous motet Ave Verum Corpus. If you listen to the opening of that, you can hear that this too is in beautifully balanced, clear-cut phrases and proceeds at the same sort of flowing, slow pace as the Bruckner. of pauses between the phrases is in the Bruckner, except that Bruckner has the basses sustain what they sing through, as I said, as though they have a kind of counter melody. And next, in Bruckner's Locus Iste, it's the basses who lead off with the phrase, this is a mystery beyond price. Another silence, 
and now extreme contrast. The basses have played such an important role in this piece so far. Now Bruckner has them completely silent so that it's only the upper voices we hear as they sing the line, untainted by evil. It's a very pure sound, almost an ethereal sound, without that bass, as though it's floating. Finally, there's a short section which rounds us off by bringing us back to the opening music. Now here's the whole of Bruckner's locus iste. This place is made by God. It seems so simple on the face of it, but listen out for that contrast, that tension between what the sopranos are singing and the bass line, the mysterious melody that echoes it underneath. It's a really subtle drama that continues until almost the end when there's a full harmony achieved.
thank you to the BBC singers and to conductor Bob Chilcott for that very moving performance of Bruckner's Locus Iste. We move on now to one of Bruckner's settings of the Ave Maria. It's the words that the angel is supposed to have said to the Blessed Virgin Mary when she was told that she was going to conceive and bear Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. This was a crucial prayer for Bruckner, and we know that because, rather unusually, he kept a kind of prayer diary in which he'd note in quote every formal prayer that he made for every day of his life. So we can safely say that the words of this prayer were embedded in his soul. We're going to hear the most famous setting that he made in 1861. This was when he was in his mid-30s. It's quite a complex setting. It's in seven parts, and it's also quite dramatic. There is a foretaste of the drama that one gets in the later symphonies and in the masses. It begins with quite a stark contrast. First we hear the women's voices alone, then the men's. And then, as we get to that crucial line, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, there's a massive climax, and the word Jesus is repeated three times, getting louder and louder, and achieving an extraordinary sonorous radiance. to give it a moment to reverberate around this, this building. One thing that's very clear when you listen to Bruckner, whether it's his orchestral music or his choral music, is the way he uses silence and the way he uses the building in which this music's being performed, almost as though it were a musical instrument in its own right. Now, I think that's partly because he was a cathedral organist. For a lot of his later years, he was the organist of St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, which is a building with a magnificent acoustic. And one thing you notice if you've ever played the organ is you don't just play the instrument, you're playing the whole building. You know, just as the body of the violin is for a violinist, so a cathedral is for a cathedral organist. It's an extraordinary sense of involvement with your environment. And you can sense that in these great pauses that occur in Bruckner's music again and again, especially after that crucial word, Jesus, there. But now the praise turns to prayer, to supplication. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. You'll notice that the bases lead again, as they did in Locusiste, 
we can sense Mary's serene, calming, reassuring, maternal presence in the final bars of this motet. The point I should make here, actually, that might help explain Bruckner's intense devotion to the Virgin Mary in his prayers and in later life particularly, it might be connected with his devotion to another important female figure in his life, his mother. She was the strong presence in his family. And when Bruckner wrote his third symphony, he made it very clear that the symphony was written in memory of her. There was one theme in particular that he said was a portrait of his mother. And interestingly enough, it sounds quite like that setting of the Ave Maria in parts. So maybe his image of his mother colored his understanding of the figure of the mother of God. Maybe not. It's certainly something worth bearing in mind now as we hear the performance of this extraordinarily beautiful Ave Maria.
next motet we're to hear is called Vexilla Regis. The royal banners go forward, the cross shines in mystic glow. Now, this was written much later in Bruckner's life. It was written in 1892, and I think I'm right in saying that it was the very last work he completed, because the great tragedy of Bruckner's final years is that he came within a whisker of finishing his Ninth Symphony just before he died in 1896. Incredible battle against failing health, which he almost won. And indeed, there's a distinct possibility that he might have won it, and that souvenir hunters helped themselves to some of the crucial final pages of the manuscript that were lying on his bedside table when he died. So this is where I normally put out an appeal that if any of you ever see anything that looks like a movement in D minor for a large orchestra in a 19th century florid hand, please send it to me. But this last motet, Vexilla Regis, has things in common very much with the Ninth Symphony. By this stage in his career, Bruckner's harmony, his sense of harmony, which as you've already heard can be wonderfully lush and expressive, had become even more original and forward-looking. Now he'd partly learned this from his extraordinary devotion to and fascination for the music of Richard Wagner, who was his idol amongst living composers. But it's also highly original. His way of thinking isn't like Wagner's at all. It also partly reflects that when he was much younger, he got involved with a movement called the Sicilian Movement, who were very much backward-looking. They felt that Palestrina, the great Renaissance church composer, represented the height of musical church composition, and that there had been a state of perpetual decline ever since. And Bruckner got temporarily involved with and interested by the Sicilian movement and wrote some music for them, but gradually he began to find their ideas too narrow and they certainly wouldn't have approved of anyone in their movement being a Wagnerian, so that would no doubt have caused some strain. But what Bruckner does never sounds simply archaic, stylized old-fashionedness. He learnt from Palestrina but enriched his own language in the process rather than trying to create another one. One of the things he used, that Palestina uses, which enriched his language, was the use of the old church scales or modes. Now, I think the best way to demonstrate these, because this is relevant not only to this motet but one that follows, is to ask the choir to sing one of these modes. This is a mode called the Phrygian mode, the Phrygian scale. It sounds like an ordinary minor scale, but if you listen closely, you'll notice that the second note is a little bit flatter than it should be. Instead of being a tone, it's a semitone. It has a faintly familiar flavour. That's the very same mode that Vaughan Williams uses in his famous Talis Fantasia, where it has a similar archaizing effect. Now, this is the first phrase of Vexilla Regis, which is entirely set to that mode. As I said, the text at this point is, the royal banners go forward, and the cross shines in mystic glow. I think mystic glow is a lovely description of the sound of this opening phrase. Now, 
Now, this is the same mode that Palestrina uses in one of his most famous church compositions, Stabat Mater. But interestingly enough, the opening of Bruckner's Vexilla Regis also includes a reference to Wagner's last opera, Parsifal. Unlike some commentators since then, he took the Christian imagery that Wagner represented in Parsifal very seriously. One element that he uses is a very old German Amen that was known as the Dresden Amen. This is how it's heard towards the end of Act One of Parsifal. the second phrase of Bruckner's motet. Try and keep Wagner's rising figure in mind as the choir sing what Bruckner wrote. But after that very pure beginning in the mode, Bruckner now springs an extraordinary harmonic surprise. What follows next is the last chord you'd expect to follow those, and it's uh, quite a challenge for the singers, I think. warm sound of that major chord at the end. And again, notice the use of the basses right at the bottom of the texture. That's Bruckner's, one of his trademarks in his writing for the chorus. So let's hear in full the motet Vexilla Regis. And you'll sense the wonderful contrast in this between that archaic, old-fashioned music with its mystic glow and the much more expressive, romantic, chromatic harmonies that clearly derive from Wagner. And yet in the end, we're always brought back home to the sense of stability and security at the beginning of the piece.
it's time to bring in our conductor, Bob Chilcott, who's doing such magnificent work with these motets here this evening. Now, Bruckner was a choral conductor. He presumably knew what he was doing, but he does make some pretty extraordinary demands on the chorus. How difficult is this to sing? It's remarkably difficult, simply the control. It's interesting what you say about him being an organist. The chords and the texture move very similarly to the way an organ works. It has to be very, very sound and clear with long vowels. And it's yeah. the contrast of austerity and incredible voluptuous harmony like we had in the last piece. I think. Mm. It's also true in a very different way of the next motet we're going to hear, Ossiusti Meditabitur. Now, how would you contrast this with the one we've just heard? It is a very different kind of piece, isn't it? Yes. Uh, well, interestingly, this is written with incredible rigor, this next piece. It's actually written on the Lydian mode scale, which I think we're going to sing for you in a minute, but which means that for pianists here that there, there are no black notes at all in the piece. I must say, it wasn't until I actually got a score and saw this that I suddenly thought, hey, there are no black <laughs> notes in this piece. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't sound as if someone, like someone being ridiculously restrained at all. No, it? that, that's the interesting thing. There is tremendous rigor, but it's incredibly free. And you'll notice, too, that there are very, very wide textures and very close textures, but there's no more than four notes in any chord. And so. yet there are times when you sense these eight parts Huge. or more flying yeah. around. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's give a demonstration before you go any further of this Lydian scale. This is another kind, one of these ancient church modes. The different thing this time is that it, the fourth of the scale is sharpened. And I think we'll ask the singers just to lean on that note a little, just to give it a bit of extra kick. And it's only the notes of that scale that Bruckner uses for the entire piece. It begins very, very simply, a little bit like Vexilla Regis in four parts. And then there's this extraordinary controlled explosion into a kind of ecstatic eight-part polyphony. Now, one of the things about that striking, ecstatic flowering at the end there is that all the sopranos are doing is singing a simple descending scale at the top. And how gloriously the parts flow underneath it. When Bruckner chose that descending scale, he had something quite specific in mind, something he actually quotes in one of his own mass settings. And that's the Amen from the credo of Palestrina's Pope Marcellus Mass which, as you'll hear now as we get the singers to perform the Amen, is also based around simple descending scale patterns.
That wonderful sound, that free-flowing, imitative counterpoint with the voices bouncing off each other, echoing each other, sometimes like the, the architecture of a magnificent Gothic cathedral. It has this extraordinary similar quality. And that's exactly the kind of style that Bruckner now emulates in the next part of Os Justi. You can hear this almost sounds like Palestrina. Here then is the whole of Bruckner's motet, Hus Justi Meditabitur, the mouth of the just is exercised in wisdom. I'd like to prepare you though for the ending of this piece because in a way it's a bit of a surprise. After this incredible display, this virtuoso display, you might say, of a composer's ingenuity and craft, the end is one of breathtaking simplicity. You have an old Latin plain chant phrase, very simply harmonized to just one chord. It sounds more like John Taverner than any 19th century composer. And then you'll hear the whole choir together, just singing the old plain song chant. This is almost like a gesture of humility, as though the composer were putting craft behind him and kneeling before the simplicity of an earlier age. So here is Bruckner's Os Justi, performed by the BBC Singers, conducted by Bob Chilcott.
But we do have time for just a few questions uh, before we pass on to the final motet in today's program, Christus Factus Est. Lady here on the front row. The um, Vixilla is the only one I didn't recognize the words as being either liturgical or biblical. Mm. Um, can you give me the origin of that? I noticed uh, they missed a great chunk out of the middle, by the way. I just thought uh, I'd tell there, you I'd noticed. There's a bit of a mystery of another kind associated with this motet, which is why it seems to have two different texts. And I'm on the job, but I still haven't worked out quite why yet. Um, this isn't one of the biblical settings, by the way. Most of the other texts are from the Bible, but this one isn't. This is a traditional medieval hymn, I understand. The royal banners of the cross go forward. Um, but it is one that is certainly seems to have inspired Bruckner. And, and the fact that he should have chosen this text in his last years, when he was so preoccupied putting all his declining energy into trying to finish the Ninth Symphony, the symphony that he had dedicated to dear God, and it actually says it on the flyleaf, that he should have felt it was, this text was worthy of putting aside some of that energy and working on this motet, I think just shows how significant it was for him. You've painted a lovely picture tonight of the, the echoes of the experience of an organist in a cathedral mm. showing through in his other, Bruckner's other works. As we listen to the symphonies, can we hear other sort of musical watermarks of his church or spiritual experience showing through there, do you think? Well, this is a... How much time have we got? <laughs> um, this is one of those subjects I could go on all night and bore you senseless, but um, Bruckner's symphonies have sometimes been described, a rather memorable phrase, as cathedrals in sound. And even if you don't know anything about the technical aspect of music, they really do have a quality like that sometimes. Also, the fact that they are often based on the same structural plan. There was an old joke, Bruckner wrote the same symphony nine times. Well, in a sense, he did, because he did return to the same ground plan and reinterpret it. But in doing so, he was like the builders of the medieval cathedrals. Every Gothic cathedral is based on the shape of a cross. The key elements in the architecture are always in the same place. But we don't say that Chartres Cathedral and Ely Cathedral are the same building. They're not at all. They have a completely different spiritual quality about them and a different architectural focus. That brings us to our last motet, Christus Factus Est. This is one of the masterpieces, not just of Bruckner's output, but of 19th century church repertoire altogether. And it is, again, a text with a crucial significance for the devoutly Catholic Bruckner, because it's about the central mystery of the sacrament of Mass. Christ for us became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. That's also a biblical text. But interestingly enough, Bruckner concentrates in this setting not on that final image of Christ exalted because he was obedient unto death, but on the suffering of Jesus. The suffering and the humility remain central. But you also hear something, I think more in this motet than in any of the others we've heard tonight, of the symphonic Bruckner in the way Bruckner develops ideas and in the wide-ranging harmonic explorations that there are here. But there's a point, I think, I should make here about Bruckner's harmony and another important antecedent, somebody else who was of crucial importance to Bruckner, a composer of the past, and that was Schubert. Books tend to underplay the importance of Schubert for Bruckner. They point out that Schubert's music was not freely available when Bruckner was young, so how could he have heard it? A lot of it wasn't published, and certainly much of it wasn't known. But it turns out that Bruckner had a cousin who was a composer called Johann Baptist Weiss, and Weiss had a photographic memory. 
And he had either read or heard an enormous amount of church music, including some of the church music of Schubert. And Bruckner went to stay with him during a difficult period in his childhood when he was about 10 or 11. And Weiss played him Haydn's Seasons and Creation from Memory and lots of other music. And I would be very surprised indeed if there wasn't some Schubert in that. Also, a little later in Bruckner's teens, we discovered that he found a duet partner, a woman called Karina Eberstaller, who had actually played Schubert's piano duet music with Schubert himself and had manuscript copies. So again, Bruckner's encounter with Schubert was, was crucial in this way. And you can see what I mean about the kind of harmonies that Schubert sometimes uses. It's not in Schubert's case that he devises extraordinary scrunchy chords in themselves. It's the way the chords follow one another that's so surprising and uh, sometimes so expressive. This is, you see what I mean? This is the great choral shout that begins the Gloria of Schubert's Mass in E flat. Well, that could be Bruckner. In fact, there are passages in his music where he duplicates that very progression. So I suspect he heard that passage played to him by Weiss and that it's stuck in his own very retentive musical memory. But you can hear something of the way those chords, not in themselves unusual, but the way they're put together, extraordinarily expressive. You can sense something of that as well in the beginning of the motet Christus Factus Est. Then the symphonic development begins. And interestingly enough, it's on the rhythm of the word obedience, obedient, the crucial part of the first part of the text. This is how it appears just on the altos. Now listen how in the next passage, Bruckner takes that little rhythmic motif and develops it all the time, transforming it into something new. emphasis at the end on the word mortem, death. It's a word that never appears in Bruckner's vocal music without there being an important stress on it, which is perhaps not surprising because according to a legend there are various anecdotes which tell that Bruckner had a peculiar, almost obsession with death. But then I think you might be obsessed with death if seven of your siblings had died in infancy and your own father had died when you were 13. Bruckner spent some of his early days an assistant to the priest when the priest went around delivering last rites among the villagers. So he was in contact with death in a very powerful and immediate way from very early on in his life. So it's not surprising we find him returning to it in his music again and again, and working over it. There's a fascinating moment towards the end of this motet, though, of really bare choral writing. Instead of the kind of lushness that we've heard sometimes in these motets, there's a beautiful expressive bareness. We hear just a kind of a, a bare fifth alone in the tenors and the basses. And then the sopranos come in quietly with a dissonant high note. And after this comes some wonderful flowing counterpoint. This is at the words, God hath given him a name which is above every name. 
It's all so extraordinarily poignant and touching, though. There's no triumphalism here. Bruckner wants us to remember the cost to Christ in human terms. As so often in these motets, indeed I might as well say as always, these details are so much more telling when you hear them in the context of the whole piece, because shorter some of these motets be, just as, often, just as much as in the symphonies, that sense of the balance between the parts and the whole is so crucial in Bruckner, that feeling that the somehow or other the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and yet the sense of the whole feeds back into and gives the parts such extraordinary expressive power. So here, to end this Discovering Music workshop, are the BBC Singers, conducted by Bob Chilcott, in Bruckner's Christus Factus Est. <laughs>